Well, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. In past years, as we have come into the Christmas season, we've done uh, a series leading up to Christmas that has, um, we've done lots of different things. We've done lots of different themes that are part of the Christmas story. We've talked about the various people that are part of the story. We've talked about the songs, even the songs in scripture that are part of the Christmas story, as well as the songs that we sing. We've talked about our Christmas traditions and where they come from. We've talked about Old Testament prophecies and how they're answered in the birth of Jesus. This year, what we're going to do is simply look at the Christmas story chronologically, just from start to finish, telling the Christmas story in the order in which it happened. To do that, we have to look at a couple of different books in Scripture because we have the story both from Matthew and from Luke, and they both include different details. So over the course of the next couple of weeks, we're going to be bouncing back and forth between them. But here's what it's going to look like. Today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 and see Jesus' genealogy. Next week, it will be in both Luke 1 and Matthew 1, and we'll look at various prophecies that are fulfilled and the preparation that was being made for the birth of Christ. On the 10th, we'll look at the story of Jesus' birth itself from Luke chapter 2. And in the following week, in Matthew 2, we'll see the visit of the wise men and some of the decisions that were made by Jesus' parents in the aftermath of that. And then on Sunday morning, the 24th, Christmas Eve, we'll have our children's program, which appropriately is going to retell the Christmas story for us. But we're also just going to consider for a short time that morning what Christmas means. So that's the plan. That's how we're going to be looking at the Christmas story over the next couple of weeks. And the reason for that, it's important for us to understand that this story is not just a story. It's true history. It really happened. The details that scripture gives us are true. And hopefully in going through that story, we can be once again struck with the wonder of the incarnation. The fact that God became man in the person of Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus' genealogy. And that may seem like a strange thing to talk about. It may seem like, well, why would we spend time reading lists of names and all of that? Genealogies are actually, you know, they've become popular again here in recent years. You have people working on their family tree and you have, you know, Ancestry.com and the businesses that are trying to help you discover where you came from. Well, the gospel writers give us Jesus' genealogy for a reason. It's important for us to understand where Jesus came from in order to understand who he is and why he came. We even have, um, you know, if, you, if you're into the comic book movies, the, 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 the individual superheroes who become popular often get their own spin-off movie that is their origin story. Where did they come from? How do we explain how they came with the powers that they had? In a sense, all of those kinds of things are an echo of what Scripture is doing in giving us Jesus' origin story. We have four Gospels in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they each handle this differently. Mark doesn't give us anything. 
he just jumps right into the story with the ministry of John the Baptist and then the ministry of Jesus. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark starting in January, and so we'll just kind of jump right in with him, um, skipping over all of that uh, birth story of Jesus. That's how Mark does it. John is a little bit different. He, he doesn't give us a birth story, but he does talk about Jesus' origins. He says that Jesus is the Word. You know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says the word was with God in the beginning. And so the, Jesus is the word, the logos, who has been since before the beginning. That word logos kind of has the, the meaning of the, the underlying principle or the thing that makes sense of everything else. And so John is presenting Jesus as the one who everything else makes sense because it holds together in him. Luke gives us a genealogy, but it's separate from the birth story. It comes after. So Luke tells us the Christmas story and a few other things, and then he goes into Jesus' genealogy. And he tells us that Jesus is the son of Joseph, but he's really tracing the genealogy back through Mary's line. To all the, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And his purpose in that is to say that Jesus will be the second Adam. He will be the representative of all who have faith in him, regardless of Jew or Gentile. Matthew gives us the genealogy right at the beginning as the beginning of his Christmas story. And Matthew traces Jesus back through Joseph's line all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And so the way that Matthew is presenting it is that Jesus will be the true Israel. He will be the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes. Israel's history points to him. So the birth of the Messiah in Matthew is seen as the fulfillment of the prophecies that came to us through the Jewish people. In a way, you could say that John is giving us the family history through the Holy Spirit, through whom Jesus was conceived, Matthew is showing us the family history through Joseph, and Luke is showing us the family history through Mary. And so we get a full, well-rounded picture of who Jesus is and where he came from when we consider them all together. But in terms of the Christmas story, Matthew's the one who includes the genealogy as part of the Christmas story, so that's where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 1, you can follow along in your Bible as I read verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, or the Messiah, 14 generations. All right, well, I am not going to go into the details of every single name on the list and tell you who they all were, although there are some interesting ones there. There's kings, there's other people, there's some things that we have some details from the Old Testament about. But I do want to give you a couple of observations about the genealogy in general before we get to the main thing we're going to look at. And here's what it is, okay? So the most important thing about the genealogy, the thing we're going to spend our time on this morning, is the structure of the genealogy. And what Matthew is communicating to us through the way that he structures the genealogy. Now, Hebrew genealogies are stylized. What that means is they're artistic. They are not giving you every single person in the, in the chronology. They leave some names out. They do things kind of different than we would do today. Because if we were doing a genealogy today, we would be trying to put in every single name and do it almost kind of scientific. The way a Hebrew genealogy works, it's no less accurate, but it's done artistically to communicate something in particular about the person whose genealogy it is. The, the one observation I want to give you before we get into the structure is this. Matthew's genealogy is striking because of some of the people that he includes that would normally never be included in a genealogy, namely the women. Matthew includes Tamar, who seduced her father-in-law Judah. He includes Rahab the prostitute, who was a Canaanite and helped the spies. He includes Ruth, who was not Jewish but was a Moabitess. He includes Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who had an affair with David. And then we get down to Mary, whose reputation is questionable because she's pregnant with Jesus before she's married to Joseph. So we have the inclusion of women, and not just women, but women who, for some fairly obvious reason, don't seem to belong in the genealogy, but Matthew includes them. It's as if Matthew is saying to us, I'm giving you the genealogy of the Messiah, and he's not what you expect. In fact, he's coming to be the Messiah, the answer to all of these prophecies for people that you probably think don't belong. He's not coming just as the answer to the hopes of the religious people, the respectable people, and the people who are at the top of society. He's coming for a vastly different group. It's as if Matthew's kind of embedding that message right in his genealogy. And that says something about who God includes. The key to understanding this genealogy, though, that Matthew gives us is seeing the structure. Matthew's very intentional 
about how he presents Jesus' ancestry. Um, not every generation is listed. Like I said, it's a stylistic choice. It's kind of an acceptable way of doing genealogical history if you're Jewish. But he gives us these groupings. There's three groupings. And they're centered on Abraham, David, and the exile. In our text, it's called the deportation to Babylon, but we often just call that the exile. Okay? And these are three kind of key stages of Israel's history. And Jesus, Matthew is saying, is going to be the fulfillment of each of them. So we're going to look at them this morning. But let me just point out the numbering. Matthew points out that there's 14 generations in each grouping of three that he's given us. 14, the significance of the number 14 is simply that it's a double of seven. And seven in scripture is the number of completeness or fulfillment. And so this is kind of just an, an emphasized way of talking about the fulfillment that is happening in the birth of Jesus. Jesus then is being presented as the beginning of the seventh seven. The ultimate fulfillment, we could say. The fulfillment and completion of Israel's story. And this structure is giving us Matthew's message about who Jesus is. These three stages of Israel's history. So let's look at each of them. So first of all, in those first six verses, we have Jesus as the true Israel. Abraham, where this begins, is the father of the Jewish people. God's work through human history in the Old Testament was focused on Abraham's physical descendants through Isaac. And there are exceptions, right? I mean, as you think about it, there were plenty of descendants of Isaac who didn't have true faith. And there are people outside of Isaac's line that are brought in because they do have faith. Some of them were listed in there, and we've already mentioned a few of them. People like Ruth, Rahab. But there are promises that are given to Abraham that seem to be fulfilled in the Jewish people. Promises like, a land that I will show you. God says he will give that to Abraham's descendants. That's the land of Canaan. He says, I'll make of you a great nation. And of course, Israel becomes a great nation. He says, I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. We see that even in the very lifetime of Abraham. He's considered a great man and he's used to bless many others. He says, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And that blessing happens throughout time, especially when Israel is being obedient to God's law. God blesses them. And he blesses those who come alongside and, and, and are, are on Israel's side. And he curses those who oppose God's people. But ultimately, God's purpose was broader than just Abraham's descendants through Isaac. He gives some promises to Abraham that we learn from scripture are actually promises that go beyond Abraham's physical descendants through Isaac. For instance, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That blessing comes to all the families of the earth because of Christ. Jew or Gentile. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars, so shall your offspring be. Well, the offspring of Abraham that's being spoken of there is not the physical descendants. It's those who are descendants by faith. 
And this vast number of descendants are going to be those who are the true sons of Abraham by faith, those who believe in Jesus. He, he says to Abraham, you will be a father of a multitude of nations. So not just of the Jewish nation, but of a multitude of nations, because there will be many who will come to Christ, who will be blessed because of these promises given to Abraham that are ultimately coming through Christ. And the New Testament helps us to see that all of those are fulfilled in Jesus. And even the other promises that I started with to the nation of Israel ultimately have a bigger purpose in mind. For example, the land promise. Is that fulfilled? Yeah, when you read the book of Joshua, it's specifically stated multiple times that not one part of that promise that was given to Abraham was left unfulfilled. They received the land. But as the story goes on, we realize that that was actually a picture of something greater because the Messiah who was to come would inherit the kingdom that would be the whole earth. And so that little strip of land that was promised to Abraham, that by the book of Joshua, that promise is fulfilled, that was a picture of something much greater that would happen in Christ. I want to give you an example of how the New Testament shows us this. And I'll just, I'll put this up on the screen. This is Galatians chapter 3. If you were to read verses 6 through 18, Paul goes into a lot of detail here. I'm just going to pull out a couple of verses to help us see this. So for starters, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Let me, I'm going to open up to this myself. Paul's giving an explanation here that, that really is designed to help us go back and understand how these covenant promises given to Abraham should really be understood. So Galatians 3, 6 through 9, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here you get a definition of who the true sons of Abraham are. In other words, who's really inheriting these promises? And the point is, there's a family resemblance. Right? I, I, I imagine... If we were to take the group of people that are here this morning and we took everybody that's 20 years old and younger and put them on that wall and everybody that's over 20 and put them on that wall and then you asked a stranger to come in, someone who'd never met anyone, I bet they could take a number of the kids that would be over on this wall and match them up with some people on the other wall because there's a family resemblance. There's some family characteristics that are shared. Well, the family resemblance that Paul is talking about here is faith in Jesus. He says, you want to know who the true descendants of Abraham are? It's those who have faith in Jesus. That's what makes you a true son of Abraham. So they're the ones who ultimately are the inheritors of the promises. If we jump down to verse 14, we read, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in Christ, 
the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles by faith. That's what God intended all along. When those promises were given to Abraham, this is what was in view. It's not a change of plan. It's not plan B. It's not a parenthesis. It's this is what God intended to do all along. And since those who are of faith are the true sons, this is how they receive the inheritance. It happens in Christ. If they are in Christ, then he's their representative and they receive those promises. Jump down to verses 16 and 17 and we read this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And this is fascinating. Pay attention to what he says here. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here the the key thing to understand is Paul is making a distinction between offspring singular and offsprings plural. And what he's saying is, Ultimately, this promise was given to Abraham's singular offspring who would come one day, namely Christ. So the promise was given through Abraham, but ultimately that promise is going to rest on Christ. Now, when you think through Abraham's offspring, the Bible talks about them in a variety of ways, and we've got to kind of sort it out. So there's There's four main ways that the Bible talks about Abraham's offspring. The first one is the one we think of most often. Those who are through Isaac and and then Jacob. And then we have his 12 sons. We have the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's the Israelite nation or the Jewish nation. That's who we think of primarily when we talk about the descendants of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham. But Abraham also has physical offspring by Um, his son Ishmael, and the sons of Keturah. So as those family lines continue on down, we have what are today the Arab nations. Those are physical descendants of Abraham as well, but they're not the ones that are in view here in these promises. And then we have what we just saw. We are the true sons of Abraham by faith. So that's another way that scripture speaks about Abraham's offspring. And then Paul gives us this particular one, Jesus himself, as the primary offspring of Abraham. And when we kind of realize that and read scripture with that in mind, it helps us to sort out how these promises work. And so here we are told that the original promise that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that promise was given to Abraham's offspring, Jesus, the Christ. And if we understand that, then we can kind of make sense of what's being said. And this is Matthew's point in the genealogy. Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham, in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. So the Christmas story tells us that Israel's story is coming to a climax in Christ. The promises of blessing for all the families of the earth are about to be fulfilled in Christ. 
Matthew is signaling that to us by the way he constructs his genealogy. We won't take quite as long here on the second section. Matthew 1, the end of verse 6 down through verse 11, we see that Jesus is the true king. He's the true king. Because here we have David highlighted. Now, if you go back to Abraham and you have the descendants, you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, one of Jacob's sons is Judah. And in Genesis 49, we have a prophecy about Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah. In other words, ultimately, someday, the tribe of Judah will be the royal tribe. That's the the one that's set apart by God originally as the kingly tribe. And then, as the story keeps going, you get to the days of Moses, and what happens? God gives the law, and in the midst of that, he gives instructions for what you need to do when the day comes that you have a king. Someday, you're going to want a king. And when that happens, here's what you need to look for, and here's what your king needs to do, and here's the laws regarding kingship. And so we have this kind of anticipation that that king is coming. As the story continues on, you get into the land and we have the days of the judges. And how is the the situation in those days described over and over? In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we have this kind of anticipation of there's a need for a king so that justice is done. But not yet. And so we're still left looking forward. And then the day finally comes when Israel has a king. But it doesn't happen in the right way. Because Israel says, we want a king like God? No. They say, we want a king like the nations around us. And so they choose a king like the nations around them. Based on you know, his stature, and he's tall, and he's good-looking, and he's strong, and he'll make a great military leader. And so they choose Saul as king, and it's a failure. But then Saul is followed up with the next king, David. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from the tribe of Judah. And now we're starting to get things more on track. And David is Israel's greatest king up until the coming of the Messiah. And even in those days, you have, you have this guy who's the greatest king, but he's not perfect. He starts out really well. He's anointed to be king. And even before he takes the throne, what does he do? He goes out as the, the representative of the nation and he fights the battle against Goliath. Right? If he wins the battle, Israel wins because he's doing it as their representative. But he's not yet enthroned as king at that point. But the day comes when he is enthroned as king. And then we have these massive failures like the affair with Bathsheba. And we have the census that David takes. Now, when he does that, we actually do see repentance. When he fails, there's real repentance. And so he, he repents and he calls out to God. And with the census, he even offers to be a substitute. That God would take him instead of the punishment going out on the people for David's error. And so we have this example of how a king represents his people. He goes out and fights the battle on behalf of his people. He offers himself as a substitute in their place. We have these examples of what a king is supposed to be, even though it's flawed. 
But Israel's greatest king throughout their history is David. And so that's who we have in mind when we're thinking about kingship. And so that's who Matthew centers this section of the genealogy on. Jesus is descended from David. He comes from the right line to be king. At the end of David's reign, we have this statement that is given about him. In 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so the people were waiting for a Messiah, an anointed one, a king who would come sit on the throne of David. Well, Jesus is the one, Matthew is telling us, who fulfills all those hopes and dreams. Psalm 89 is a a psalm about the Messiah, but it's spoken about as if it's David. It uses the language of David to describe the coming Messiah someday. And Jesus, when he comes, is our representative champion. Just like David goes out and fights Goliath, Jesus goes out and fights sin and Satan and death in that final climactic battle at the cross. He does so throughout his ministry, but that final battle is at the cross. And he wins the battle, we see, in his resurrection. So listen to what Paul says when he describes the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, listen carefully, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you get victory over sin and death? Through Jesus Christ. What he did earns the victory on your behalf because he's your champion, just like David earned the victory for Israel in his battle against Goliath. And Jesus is our substitute, just like David offered himself as a substitute when he sinned by taking the census and God brought that punishment on the nation. But Jesus is a sinless substitute. He truly can offer himself as the substitute in the place of his people. So again, Paul, in describing it in 2 Corinthians 5, says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus knew no sin. He was sinless. But God treated him as if he was sin itself. Our sin. He's substituting himself in our place. Okay, Made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the substitution that takes place? Jesus, as our king, as our sinless king, can substitute himself for us. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all that David signaled to us. Where David fell short, Jesus doesn't. Israel's greatest king, David, was but a shadow of the coming Messiah who would be the true king. And that's what Matthew's telling us by structuring his genealogy in such a way as to highlight David for us. The last section then of the genealogy, verses 12 to 16, tells us that Jesus is the true end of exile. 
Israel was sent into exile in a couple of ways. In, in the year 722 BC, Assyria came in and took the northern tribes away. And then in 586, Babylon came in and took the, the remaining two tribes where Jerusalem was, and they take them off to Babylon. That's the time when Daniel and his friends, for instance, are taken captive and they're taken to Babylon. And the worst part of the exile, as you read the stories in the Old Testament, the worst part of the exile for the Israelites was not just that they lost the land, but that they lost the temple and with it the presence of God. They're separated from the presence of God. What happens to Israel in the exile is on a grand scale the exact same thing that happens to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve sin, and so they have to leave the garden. They're separated from God because of their sin. Israel is in the land, and because of their persistent sin, God finally sends Babylon, and they take them out of the land, and they are separated from the place of God's presence. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is also lost, and the temple is destroyed, and, and all hope seems to be lost. But the prophets say, no, there's coming a day when the exile will end and the temple will be rebuilt. And the promises of the rebuilt temple are grand. I mean, Solomon's temple was fantastic, but the description that the prophets give is massively larger and more glorious of what's going to happen. And so, after being in exile for those years... Israel is brought back into the land and they think it's the fulfillment of what the prophets have said. You know, for example, Ezekiel had a vision where God's glory leaves the temple and then later there's a return of God to his temple. And as, as the book of Ezekiel draws to a close, the very last verse of the whole thing, chapter 48, verse 35 says, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. That expresses the hopes of the people in exile. They want to be back together with God in his presence. And that's what the prophets are promising will happen. So when they come back, you know the stories about Cyrus's decree and, and Ezra and Nehemiah lead these groups back and they, they rebuild the city and they rebuild the temple. The thing is, as you read the description, it's incomplete. They don't ever really recover the land because there's always another empire that's actually in charge. There's the Medo-Persian Empire and there's the Greek Empire and there's the Roman Empire and they're the ones that are on the scene when Jesus shows up. And even the temple itself gets rebuilt, but it's incomplete. You read the story in Ezra, Ezra chapter 3, and what you find is that all the young people, the people who were born in Babylon and heard the stories, when they come back, they see the rebuilt temple and they're celebrating, they're rejoicing because here it is, the temple has been rebuilt. But all of the older people who were in the, the land originally, they're weeping. Why are they weeping? This isn't it. This is small, it's tiny and God's presence hasn't returned. The Ark of the Covenant isn't there and it's clearly not the fulfillment of all that the prophets had promised. By the time you get down to Jesus' day, Herod is on this massive building spree and he's expanding the temple. And so here you have the temple. Maybe this is now when 
the promises will be fulfilled. But as Jesus is there, what you find is the temple is not what it's supposed to be. Jesus even goes and inspects the temple and demonstrates how it's, they've turned it into something it's not supposed to be at all. And if you were to go in to the, the Holy of Holies, what you would find is that it was an empty room. The Ark of the Covenant was never returned. The presence of God never came back. It's an empty shell. That's the situation into which Jesus is born. Jesus, Matthew is saying, is the one who brings the true end to the exile. Now let's cheat and look forward a couple of verses. If you're there in Matthew 1, look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The separation caused by sin will be solved, undone, by the work of Christ. And it continues, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Why? What does that name mean? Which means God with us. The end of exile. God returning to his people. His presence once again with his people. See, Jesus ends our exile and brings us home to God. The separation caused by sin is ended by Jesus. So, again, this is related to his kingship. He substitutes himself for us. So, as Matthew tells the story, you get to the crucifixion in Matthew chapter 27. And in verse 46, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's happening? Jesus is enduring the separation on our behalf so that we can be restored to God. Peter describes it this way, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, and don't miss this, that he might bring us to God. The substitution was designed to restore us to God, to bring us back to him. It's the end of exile, the end of separation. Go all the way to the end of the book. We looked at this when we went through the the book of Revelation, Revelation 21. John writes, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's the bride of Christ? It's the church. That's who he's seeing, the people of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now listen to what is said. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That description of the heavenly city coming down, that, that, that picture of the bride of Christ, the church, the people of God, it's described as a perfect cube, a massive perf- perfect cube. 
the only other perfect cube in all of Scripture is the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. What's being said? What Jesus has accomplished is to restore his presence to his people. So when Jesus ascends to the throne, what does he do? He pours out the Holy Spirit on the church so that we have the presence of God in us. We are the temple. Through Jesus, we've been restored to God. The exile has been ended in Christ. And just in case you missed it, Matthew emphasizes the point in that last verse. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the exile, the deportation to Babylon is 14 generations. And from the deportation of, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. He structures it, he highlights it this way to show you that Jesus is the answer to all of Israel's history. He's setting you up to understand as his gospel unfolds who Jesus is and what he came to do and why Christmas matters. Why does he begin the story this way? He wants you to see that Jesus' birth is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of Israel's history. He wants you to see what Jesus' purpose was in coming. He gathers to himself by faith the true people of Abraham, those who have faith in Christ. He represents as their king his people, winning the battle against sin and death. And he ends the exile and the separation that's caused by sin. He brings people back to God. So through the Christmas season, don't limit Christmas to lights and food and gifts and family. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. All of those things are good. Those are all part of the picture. Those all, in some way, do point us to Christ and to the meaning. But don't limit it to those things. Expand your horizons of what Christmas is all about. Remember what Christmas is the answer to. Are you living as Christ intended in light of what he accomplished? Are you living as a true son by faith who has inherited everything in Christ? Are you living as one who has the great king as his representative? Are you living as one who has been restored to God's presence? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for these words that Matthew gives us. In some ways, it's this little section of the Christmas story that's so easy to skip over because it's all these difficult names and people that we don't know much about. And we just kind of think, well, this is just maybe details that he had to put in. But help us to realize what Matthew is communicating. We sing about that little town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's what Matthew's saying. He's saying that this Christmas story is really the answer to Israel's history. It's the answer to the separation all the way back in the garden that was caused by sin. So help us as we go through this Christmas season, not to just 
stay on the surface and the things that we so much enjoy about the season, but to actually dig deeper and remember what Christmas is the answer to. Let these words point us to who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. We pray this in his name. Amen.